Welcome to Solana. We are a super fast blockchain project bringing proof of history and in turn 100,000x speeds to the blockchain ecosystem. This podcast is a discussion between our core staff, industry leaders, and top contributors to our open source project. Find out more at solana.com. That's S-O-L-A-N-A.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Solana. Now, on to the show. Hey folks, this is Anatoly from Solana, and this is the No Sharding Podcast. And today with me, I have Emin Gunser, or I think Gun, right? As you like to be uh, called. Yeah, people who know me should call me Gun. People I've met should call me Gun. And um, all the messages that come in, dear Emin, they go to spam. <laughs> Okay, so Alec, can I switch from sending you messages with Dear Emin uh, to uh, Goon? Yeah, you should. You'll get like way more responses that way. Awesome. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, uh, the people that know me call me Tolly uh, because I think Anatoly is kind of a long name for Americans. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, okay, fine, let's shorten it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good trick. It's a good yeah. trick. Cool. So. You're a professor from Cornell. Uh, you've been working on operating systems, distributed systems, probably as long as I've been programming, I think. Um, and it's super exciting to have you here because I've been working on operating systems since I graduated college in 2003. And that was like really what I spent like 10 years working on a Qualcomm. And there's just so much, so many engineering problems. It's like, it's a never ending problem, right? There's people are, I feel like are still going to be building these things a hundred years from now. Um, So it's a, it's a really cool like technology to be, uh, to be working on. Um, So do you want to like give a brief background uh, and like kind of what you've been up to? How did you get into the space? Sure. Um, Let's see, maybe brief background on my background is uh, simply that I grew up in Istanbul, Turkey. I was always a super geeky kid, and uh, I discovered computers uh, when I was, you know, at the ripe age of like, what, 13, 14, maybe 15, uh, 14 or 15. It was pretty late. And um, uh, personal computers were just coming online. They seemed amazing. I thought, whoa, I could really automate a lot of things that uh, I see people doing by hand. And um, like most people, um, I, um, I was drawn to AI and, uh, initially, and um, I, I got a very nice scholarship from Princeton. And so I left Istanbul to go and attend school there. And uh, I took some cognitive science courses. I looked around and I thought, you know, AI is really cool and all, but we actually don't know how to build stuff that works. We just don't. And, um, and so I thought, okay, you know, like there are some technologies that are well understood, programming languages, you know, that's fairly well understood. It seemed that way at the time. Uh, a bunch of other things that are very well understood. I've built my own compiler. I've done a bunch of things. I'd never been able to write my own operating system. It was just too <laughs> complex, right? And so I thought, you know, I'm going to go to grad school and I'm going to learn how to, uh, how to build operating systems. And uh, this AI thing, we'll have to wait. We really have to get our infrastructure right. And every year since then, and this was a long, long time ago, every year since then, my choices have been, have been validated. I think uh, we still don't know how to build basic systems that work. Just look around. The most stuff is flaky. It works solely because there's a crap ton of people who are uh, uh, concentrated on making it work. Um, uh, the uh, you know large-scale distributed services very hard to get going as you well know very hard to keep up um, 
you know, so blockchains are kind of exciting for that purpose alone. I think uh, they they uh, uh, they are resilient in a way that most other services are not. In any case, um, what I did was I went out on to the University of Washington to get my degree. That that was the hotbed of uh, OS building activity. Um, UW and uh, MIT. I didn't get into MIT, so uh, we competed against the MIT uh, approach on how to build extensible operating systems. And um, so, so uh, what year was this oh, that you were build, building an extensible OS? Oh, it was 1993. So, uh, wow. so, yeah, this was a system called Spin. Um, back then, the, the difficulty was, you know, everybody wanted operating systems to do something different, something, something interesting, something cool, not, not the basic stuff. But it's a little hard to change the OS, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you want to drop in these modules that change what it does, but you need to make sure that you can do this in a safe manner. So uh, uh, we explored one option uh, called SPIN, which explored the idea of uh, embedding type-safe code into a bigger substrate. And um, you see this technology in applets uh, today. Uh, Java is something that came after SPIN that has some of the same ideological uh, features. Yep. I mean, C object model, right? Right, right, right. Like the whole, like basically the you know the most successful operating system in the '90s was built using very similar, um, very similar you know design principles. Right, but without safety, right? So yep. uh, exactly. So this was the big big thing that uh, marked that decade. I think that decade of the '90s in systems was spent on extensibility. And I think we kind of figured it out. And uh, so, uh, so anyhow, I enjoyed the process. Then uh, I became a professor at Cornell. I uh, always thought of myself as an OS person. So, you know, deep down, like, you know, that's the kind of thing I like to build. Uh, but in between building OSs, the world doesn't need an OS every year. It needs an OS every decade, right? Yeah. So, um, so in between those uh, those two events, right? You know the the, the one OS to the next one. You got to do something, and um, so I started getting into distributed systems. I started looking into file sharing and peer to peer, which was really hot at the time, and I started by building a um, uh, an initial system to combat um, uh, leechers in peer to peer file sharing. Remember those? Remember that yeah. Dude, uh, Nutella, Napster. Uh, yeah. Uh, what was the big one? Kazaa, LimeWire, yeah. LimeWire, these were all big. Yeah. And, uh, they were great. And um, and so, uh, so yeah, no, I started looking into this. At the time, Bram was looking into um, into BitTorrent, and his initial starting idea was, let's do, let's do barter, right? If I want a block, and I give you a block, then you give me a block, then we kind of get something going between the two of us. Um, Barter is very limited. You and I have to be in the same swarm. We have to be interested in the same content. And uh, I thought, well, why don't I use something else? Why don't I um, give everybody an initial purse and then for every block, they, somebody charges them, depending on how rare that block is. And then for every block they upload, they, get, they charge other people. Right? Well, it's just a, form of, a primitive form of money. So I built a system called Karma for this. 
And um, it had two features. One is it's entirely peer-to-peer. -peer. It's distributed, decentralized, no central mint. And two, it had uh, proof of work in it. It's what, so what year was this? Just to give people context. Oh, the, the work started in 2002. The okay. took place in yeah. 2003. So way before Satoshi was ever doing it. Yeah, yep. Way before anybody thought of... Uh, of using, uh, uh, using um, proof of work for minting coins, with the exception of a, sort of a short passage in a very nice paper by Rivest. So uh, Rivest had mentioned this in passing. I didn't know about it at the time, uh, but we built it. And um, I was, I was, I'm pretty proud of that work. Uh, it didn't exactly duplicate Bitcoin, so Satoshi had something going for him. He had the longest chain aspect of it sorted out in a, in a, better that was, in a, in a way that was better than the way I had it. So, um, but anyway, Karma was very, very well received academically. It's very well cited. The problem was the year, 2003, 2002. <laughs> you remember those years? This is like... This is me graduating from college, post.com crash. And my friends and I were trying to bootstrap the startup doing voice over IP Vonage, if you remember this, yeah. out of central Illinois. Yeah. And it was just like crickets. You like could not, nobody wanted to talk about tech. People thought that computer science was not a good uh, degree to get. Absolutely. Yeah. Those were actually bad years. When you're in a, in a bear like time, every idiot just goes bearish on you. And you're like, dude, like you were so excited just yesterday. And now just because other people around you are kind of like a little bit more now, you're all, I mean, it's just crazy. Like the way these people, they don't have principles. And if you're not principled, then you just get, you know, blown around by the winds. Um, the other thing, of course, that was happening then was terrorist financing was in the news all the time. And Hawala networks, you know, like the 9-11 guys, yeah. how did they get their money, blah, blah, blah. And so I was counseled, and I think correctly, not to work on this topic that I would never be able to get any funding for it, which is probably true. And, um, and the government would never look uh, kindly upon electronic cash, which was true at the time. So, uh, so I didn't really follow up on the karma work with anything. Um, I did a bunch of other work in related areas like peer-to-peer -peer reputation and so forth. Um, then I, you know, so then I kind of just cooled off. I started working on large-scale distributed data stores and, um, uh, then the, the Bitcoin thing happened and I got back into Bitcoin. I looked into, you know, what Satoshi had done and we found the biggest known flaw with the protocol. It was mischaracterized. Everybody was saying something. The core devs were going around making a bunch of claims. Uh, these are what are known as folk theorems. Yep. Things that the folks believe to be true. Um, so we we showed that they're not true. And, um, so so what was the what was the actual flaw? Can you can uh, you can you talk about that? Sure. It's uh, so um, Satoshi says, look, here's my protocol, and uh, here's what you should do. Every time you mine a block, you share it with everybody else. You tell everyone, and then you cooperatively build a blockchain. And this blockchain is secure as long as a majority of the of the participants. Um, are, uh, are honest. So it turns out that this claim is incorrect. It turns out that if you don't do what Satoshi says, but instead if you do the following strategy, which is it's known as selfish mining, when you find a block, you do not immediately share it with other people because you're not a chump. You yep. keep it behind your back. 
you keep it secret. You are now ahead of everybody by one click. And so that puts you in, a, in an advantageous position. The moment you have found your block, everybody else, in essence, is working on a stale solution. So, uh, so and you can see how this is going to lead to a win. Um, the easiest case to imagine are multiple cases. And it's kind of like a blackjack strategy. Not every case is necessarily a win. But on average, you will come out far ahead. So, uh, but here is the easiest case to visualize. So with some probability, I find a block, right? And so I keep it behind my back. And with some other probability, I find a second block. It was in fact the same probability, just multi-squared, right? Yep. So, uh, so, okay, so now I've got two blocks behind my back. Everybody else is two clicks behind me. And if they come up with a block, I say, oh, guys, uh, that's pretty nice of you that you worked so hard to come up with that little turd over there. But behind my back, I had two blocks all along, and here they are. And by, by the longest chain rule, the work that they did to discover their block is entirely lost. Their block is orphaned. These guys got uh, mislaid. They ended up putting their hash power into completely wasted work, and it's not going anywhere. They're not going to get rewarded for it. So you can see how this is a, a win, and you could use this to knock out the blocks of your honest participants. And, and this is generally called a selfish mining, right? Yeah. And the, the, attack, the attacker needs, I think in your paper you cited a third of the network, but I think some folks have even lowered that bound to like 23%, I think as low as I've seen it. Um, well, it all depends on how effective, uh, uh, well, it depends on a couple of factors. It, it essentially depends on how effective the attacker is within the network. So um, if the attacker has no effect within the network, he has no ability to push his blocks very, very fast, then uh, he needs to, he, he will win with selfish mining if he is larger than 33%. Yep. So that already shows you that you don't need to, uh, that the honest majority has, can't be 51%. It has to be 67% or bigger. Or else I can unilaterally go selfish and start winning against the honest and, uh, but then, depending on how good my reach is as a selfish miner, I can push the bound lower and lower. And in fact, zero is the lower limit. So uh, if I'm really good and the other folks are, are very granular, they're very small, then I can make the size very, like even at like 3%, I can mine and collect more than 3% of the rewards. So, um, and the way this goes is at, with selfish mining at 49%, I collect 100% of the rewards. Yep. So that's pretty amazing. And uh, it's kind of fun uh, to think about. And it's kind of cool to say, hey, guys, you all are saying a bunch of stuff. It's all wrong. And uh, here's the proper analysis. Are there any, I, I mean, I think I saw a paper on a proof of stake networks as well that there is some way to basically censor the other validators and withdraw enough rewards. So. I believe like intuitively to me that bound seems to be applicable to any distributed system, right? As soon as I have more than a third, everything, I mean, we all know that that's enough to take over the network, right? Let's be careful here. Right. So you are absolutely right that uh, selfish mining style attacks are, um, are, are viable for any protocol. So at the core of all of these attacks lies a very simple strategy. I know something you don't, I don't tell you. 
like uh, right so it's kind of like a, an episode of lost i've discovered something yeah. <laughs> and like the last thing those bastards ever do is tell other people i would tell everyone but uh, <laughs> it's like there's a hatch in this like desert desert island you know you can't have a president so um, <laughs> these attacks are viable for any protocol um, and uh, surely for proof of stake protocols as well you could knock out validators work uh, you could do you could do depending on the protocol you could do things um, now, but be careful, because there are lots of proof-of-stake protocols, and um, uh, the bound you are referring to applies solely to protocols in the classical domain. So these are protocols that power things like um, Hyperledger, Corda, um, ETH2O, and a bunch of other systems like that, and the bound there is, a, uh, is one-third. So if the attacker is bigger than one-third, all of their guarantees go out the door. Um, that bound does not apply to other consensus families. Most notably, it doesn't apply to Avalanche. Avalanche can handle attackers um, all the way up to 50%, and it can even handle attackers above 50%, although it cannot guarantee liveness, it will guarantee safety in the presence of attackers greater than 50%. And, uh, and then there's this other amazing thing about Avalanche, which is um, if, if you parameterize your protocol for an attacker of size 33%, and the attacker turns out to be, say, 40%, um, he doesn't just immediately win. Against the classical protocol, he does immediately win. He, he takes over Ethereum 2.0. Ethereum one crap. Uh, you can't trust what's happened. People have to get on a phone call and sort out what's happened. Um, with Avalanche, just, just so we don't like make too many uh, claims, right? Like I think the realities of what can happen, right, is the chain can stall, right? So there's no guarantee, there's no liveness guarantees if the attacker's over 30%. So those go out the window. For Ethereum to all? Yeah. No, no, um, he can, he can create, uh, he can create, um, let me see what can happen. Um, chain will stall for sure. Um, now, um, I believe he can create a safety violation with larger than 33%. Okay, I, I because uh, because it can uh, basically censor the rest of the network and quadratically leak them until he takes it over. So, like, okay. well, okay, let me let me backtrack from okay. my point because I don't know ETH too okay. okay, so yeah. I, I I have tried to follow it, but it changes way too much. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. true. I'm I'm probably basing my assumptions on like stale information as well. So exactly. I think, I think the saying is, I spoke to Vitalik only last week, so therefore I don't. <laughs> <You know>? yeah, <laughs> it changes faster than anything else. So, um, so, uh, so I shouldn't really say anything about ETH2O. Um, but, but Tendermint, okay. Tendermint is a yeah, fairly simple, simple system. Everybody understands it. Great. And Tendermint will actually have a safety violation at 34% uh, at, uh, of an attacker. The moment the attacker is larger than 33 or 34%, you're going to have a safety violation. There, it, there's the very real, it's not, it's the attacker is guaranteed to be able to fool the, um, the, uh, the honest uh, participants into thinking that a spend that occurred did not actually happen. But, but that requires the attacker also partitioning the network, right? To where the attacker kind of gets to be eclipsed both sides, right? So both, yeah. both partitions see that they're in the supermajority and then they decide to continue building blocks 
and one partition happens to be Binance, the other one's Coinbase, and you get to rob everybody, right? Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yep. So, uh, but uh, but with Avalanche, um, the safety uh, the safety criteria works as follows: suppose you parameterize the protocol for thirty three percent, suppose the attacker is forty percent big, um, it doesn't mean that he will immediately win. Instead. Um, a safety violation that would have happened. So um, Avalanche guarantees that safety violations are incredibly rare to the point of once every 20,000 years. If the attacker is bigger than you anticipated, then he doesn't win and just take over the system. He instead uh, gets to make it a little more uh, frequent than what you targeted. So instead of a safety violation every 20,000 years, you might end up at 40%. It'll probably be something like a safety violation every 5,000 years. So I think that's a pretty nice way to, uh, to fail gracefully. So one of the biggest problems with these protocols, as you well know, is parameterization. Like, what's a good number of validators? I don't know. Um, can someone take over a third of them? Why not? Depends on the number you picked. Um, isn't that number super fragile? Yes, it's absolutely super freaking fragile. And um, uh, so, uh, uh, in fact, you're going to end up having correlated failures among your validators anyway. So if they're all in AWS or whatnot. Yep. So it's so hard to pick these numbers and it's so hard to build robust systems. And so a hard bound is uh, incredibly hard to deal with. And uh, it's, it's, it creates this fragility in the protocol that uh, you know newer protocols, uh, stochastic protocols like Avalanche don't suffer from. That's very cool. Um, so what is like the fundamental kind of reason why that works for Avalanche? Like how, do, how does it actually work? What is the, how do you make this probabilistic consensus work out? Um, okay, so that's a good question. So here is, I think, the, the sort of the, the very short overview of the entire consensus space. It's a space that's been around for 45 years or so, and there have only been three protocol families. So one of them is Nakamoto consensus. You mine, okay, and you mine with a bunch of gear and you consume a crap ton of energy and you're contributing to melting down the polar ice caps and killing the bears. And, but you know, some people don't care, I do. Um, but, uh, but for those who don't care, they're still leaking value out of their store. So the, the tendency for Bitcoin is for the price to go down unless there's more money is flowing into the scheme. And that's not a good dynamic. So they're leaking billions per year, actually. So more than that has to come in per year. Uh, so that's Nakamoto. And the other one is classical protocols. In these protocols, we have a small set of validators, kind of like a Senate, and uh, this number can't be very large. It has to be around 100 for a reason that's going to be obvious in two seconds. And so the members of the Senate all talk to each other to confirm that there is enough of a quorum within the Senate to pass a resolution. So if I'm a member of the Senate, I talk to everybody and I say, hey, guys, we're leaving the, the European Union, right? And I get a bunch of responses. And if I get enough responses such that even in the presence of Byzantine people who lie to me and you, uh, there'd be enough honest people in my intersection and your intersection to pass a message that we voted to exit the EU, then I can actually say this is finalized. So that's, that's classical protocols. You can see because everybody has to talk to everybody else, these protocols don't scale. They're unsquared. They don't well, scale. Well, you can make it. You can uh, you can squeeze a lot of numbers out of that 
Oh, I mean, we're, like, we're a classical protocol and yeah. we're designing to 20,000 validators, right? The people like you can do, can do amazing things, right? <laughs> so let's not, uh, let's not underestimate a great hacker. Um, so the tricks that are used are generally things like subselection, committee subselection, and uh, batching, a bunch of other tricks. Uh, you know these very, very yep. well. They're all, they're all smart tricks. Um, but, you know, I think if I were to caricaturize how these protocols worked, I, I, gave, I gave a description of PBFT. Yes. That's the simplest way that, they, that one would imagine these classical protocols working. You can tweak them, but the bottom line is they really don't scale to, uh, to um, large numbers of active participants in every round. You have to reduce that at some level. And um, like, for example, Libra um, is a classical protocol. It was designed by my student when he was an intern at VMware. And um, it is, I think, the best, uh, best of classical protocols. And Libra doesn't, doesn't try to uh, scale to more than a few hundred validators. Is, they're, 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 trying, they're growing after 100. Anyhow, so let me tell you how Avalanche works. It's fairly straightforward. In Avalanche, we have a very large group of validators. And we're not going to require that we have precise membership. So I don't even know who exactly this set is. Okay, it's like a giant stadium. I know a bunch of people there. You know a bunch of people there. But, you know, we don't know everybody there. We certainly don't know, we know, that, know it precisely. The way the protocol works is, um, is in multiple rounds. In every round, we're going to do the same dumb thing. And uh, a magical thing comes out at the end. And the dumb thing is, in every round, I pick a couple of people at random, let's say three, maybe five people. And I say, hey guys, uh, you know, let's say the decision is between two colors, you know, blue versus red. Do you guys prefer red or blue? And then they say, yeah, you know, we, we currently prefer red or blue. And based on what I'm polling, I change my own preference. So if I ask three people, you know, what color do you like? And they say, red, blue, red, I go red. You do the same thing. And this is very similar to like how epidemic protocols work. Exactly like an epidemic protocol. Exactly like uh, gossip protocols. I will repeat this. And so you can see, uh, maybe, I don't know if you can see. It's hard to see. Uh, <laughs> it's audio only, right? But, uh, but imagine, imagine a stadium that's 50-50 split. After one round of this, it's not going to be 50-50 split. It's incredibly unlikely that it will be exactly 50-50. It's possible, but, you know, very, very unlikely. Uh, and if it is, then the next round will fix it. But uh, more than likely, after one round, we will have a slight uh, preponderance of red or blue. So we'll have maybe 51% red. And, um, and then the next round will extenuate that red. Why? Because there's more of it, 51% more than 1% you know, more than blues. And so it's going to go from 51 to 53 probably. And then you do another round, it suddenly will sort of snowball and uh, go down this, this hill, this gradient, this energy gradient for the network where people get more and more and more red. And after a very modest number of rounds, everybody uh, will have the same preference, will have the same color. And that's when you can decide. So pretty straightforward protocol, very, very simple. Um, so very from simple. just just me, uh, like hearing this, the like what, what would you say is like the trade-off between this and a classical protocol? Or are you like Ava Maximalist, there's no trade-off, it's better in every parameter? <laughs> so every time somebody asks me this, I have to push back a little bit. So let me push back on that. So, you know, it's become this like sort of a wise man thing to say, 
that everything's a trade-off. Okay, so there's always some idiot reminding me that everything is a trade-off. <laughs> you know what? Everything is not a freaking trade-off. It's just not. For example, if all you've got are unicycles and someone comes by with a bicycle, he's going to, you know, steamroll through there. Speaking of steamrollers, you know, steamroller is much better than a hand-pulled uh, weight. And there are umpteen different things like this, right? So where one, you know, burritos versus tacos, right? Once burritos come along, I think tacos are kind of crappy. Right? They fall out the other end. There is an invention. Yeah. It's undeniable. <laughs> <laughs> I love the analogy. It's burritos versus tacos. Burritos win by every metric. Clearly win. They clearly win by every metric. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm obviously exaggerating to make my point. But, um, but the bottom line is, not everything is always a trade-off. There's always trade-offs within the same family. So if you're going to do, let's say, Nakamoto consensus, you're going to make your blocks bigger, well, then you're going to pay in some yeah. other fashion. Yeah. Maybe central, decentralization will go out of that. Um, so what is the trade-off with, with Avalanche? I mean, there are trade-offs, right? So one, it's uh, the... the it's a probabilistic protocol. So people have to be okay with that. Um, and uh, so what's the difference? A um, standard protocol will give you 100% guarantee that there is no safety violation. AVA gives you a 99.99999, a gazillion nines percent guarantee. So what, what, so what is the time or how many rounds do I get until I get like four nines of finality? Oh, um, it's more, much more than four nines. Four nines is nowhere near sufficient for us. Sure. Okay. So six no. nines, like in one yeah. round, do I get six nines in one round? No, no. You, you need uh, about 17 to so about 15 to 20 rounds in a network of 10,000 nodes to get uh, finality with the likelihood less than um, one safety violation every 20,000 years. But like, so, if I'm building an, you know, a Satoshi's dice, I don't really care about that. I want faster UX. Oh. Can I get can I get four nines in one round? Um, I, yeah, possibly. Yeah, I don't know. No, you can't get four nines in one round. That that's not going to happen. But uh, probably in uh, much less than what I quoted. Okay. I quoted fifteen to twenty. I think probably like eight or ten should give you like four nines easily. Four nines. But, um, but I suggest not doing that because the extra cost of those rounds is negligible. Just go to something that's so low probability that you can sleep well at night. And um, the uh, actual number in, in terms of seconds for Avalanche is one to two seconds. So we are on the test net, we're getting sub one second finality. To get to the full 17 rounds? Uh, yeah, exactly. Cool. And this is with like a, a network of like how big, how big are the networks that you guys are simulating? 2,000. We're not simulating, we're running 2,000. Okay. 2,000 nodes. Cool. So, That's amazing. Yeah, sizable, uh, sizable network, yeah. Yeah. Help, uh, is it all on AWS? Uh, yeah, of course. Well, okay. where else can I get 2,000 yeah. nodes on call, you know? Yep. So it's gonna be <laughs> definitely going to change when we go live and then real. And I don't know how. Uh, it's going to be a great, uh, great uh, sight to see. I'm just just make sure you're you're planning for MTU size of sub for you know sub thirteen hundred. That's right. Yes. <laughs> you know, we're not we're not doing crazy crazy tricks like you are doing. Like if I had you working on an avalanche, 
uh, we would easily get another 10x. So, uh, so we're not pulling those kinds of tricks. So, you know, we're not doing like, you know, I've done that kind of performance work before. It's awesome. But uh, not on this, on this project. It's blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> I, know, I know how much effort goes into it. Yeah. That's really amazing. Um, gossip protocols and, and the, that approach is uh, really cool. Like, uh, to me, that seems like definitely the evolution of like, classical and Nakamoto consensus. Do you remember, totally, do you remember when, uh, you know, in the noughts and maybe like early, early part of this decade, people used to work on distribution networks. They would build these like, you know, trees and multi-trees yeah. and complicated graphs and yeah. complicated graph structures for disseminating information. And then, then came the, the wave of loosey-goosey gossip networks. And yep. gossip is so freaking awesome. It's so robust. It takes you an afternoon to write, and then it just, just works, right? And yep. so Avalanche is to consensus what gossip was to content distribution. Gossip is lightweight, cheap, randomized, and very effective. And so is Avalanche, lightweight, cheap, randomized, very effective. And then, but it's a new code base. Like if you ask me what's the other trade-off, it's all a new code base. Um, so uh, there was a lot of building that we had to do from scratch. Uh, so, uh, so there was a whole lot of unknowns with regard to the code base itself. You know, um, I, I mean, just like myself too, like we wrote this code, you know, since February 2018 was the first line of code written. Um, and like a lot of it was written like at 2, 3 a.m. <laughs> so, so like, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy that these systems that are people, like a lot of projects are building this at breakneck speeds and then launching and then running a lot of assets under management, right? By these like decentralized networks. It, it's, it's kind of a, a crazy world to be a part of so yeah so let me say a few words about this there's an ongoing joke uh in the office right you know next door uh where we uh talk about the the dark ava so you know we're like looking around and every now and then the temptation comes over us we're like guys like if i didn't have you all working on ava um we could you know we could just go to the caribbean you know find a, a, a sort of an anonymous internet drop and we could own the crap out of so many protocols, like the talent there that's currently focused on building constructive good things on Ava could easily turn to, uh, to make a crap ton of money from these networks into which people have poured their life savings. None of that code has got any scrutiny. Like you want to look at, I'm not going to name names, but I can. Shall I name names? I, mean, I don't know. What name names. <laughs> it's it's your it's it's used naming names, not me, right? Sure. <laughs> you don't have to name names. Off the top of my head, Nem. You know what's going on with Nem, right? So where is that code base? I took a look at it once, and you're like, "Whoa, this is very intricate stuff." And uh, I'm sure that if somebody looked carefully into it, they'd be able to uh, to extract some uh, some bugs out of it without all that much effort. So uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um. You guys are building in Rust, right? No, Go. At Go, moment, okay. Go, Go and Python. An excellent choice, Go. Python is, is a little harder to get to production. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I like the Python. I wrote the Python code. Uh, it's meant to be sort of a quick prototype for ideas. Yeah. It's meant to be sort of a sketch. 
uh, it's not going to be robust, right? It's just not. Um, but it's also good to, uh, to have multiple implementations so that in case something happens to one, you have the other. So uh, that's good to have too. Yeah, Go Go's is like a, a great systems language. I mean, um, yeah. it was written by like, um, that name escapes me, but like- Rob, one of, Rob Pike. Yeah, yeah Rob, Rob Pike. Pike. Uh, yeah, of course, yeah. I was an intern at Bell Labs years yeah. ago. And I worked with, uh, with Rob Pike, David Prezado, Ken Thompson, you know, in the Unix room. It was a great crowd. Um, Rob had the original ideas behind Go sort of information back then. He was working on another system. Um, on top of Plan 9, that operating system. Remember Plan 9? Yeah, that, that's an awesome OS. Yep. Yeah, it was, it was Unix done right. It was fantastic. <laughs> I worked on it for a summer, and it was formative for me. That elegance, that simplicity was fantastic. So you think, like, do you think the, the big companies are going to launch their own versions of this? Or are they going to basically take the best of what we have and just integrate it because it's all open source? Um, no, I think every company, every single one, will be running some blockchain code in the back end. And in fact, they will probably be doing multiple. Um, but, but is Microsoft going to build their own or are they going to like take Ava or Solana or whatever and just say, okay, this is... Oh, good question. Good question. So, I, so Microsoft specifically has been actually taking a whole lot of uh, existing systems. So I'm, I'm confident they'll take out Ava and, um, you know, uh, yeah, that's what they've done, right? They've taken the successful projects and integrated them into their systems. Um, you look at uh, Facebook, they're, they're running with their own thing. They're doing, they're trying to do their own thing. And they got regulated up the wazoo because they didn't realize just how bad they had been as actors in the global space. Um, Google is an unknown. I've had multiple conversations with them and uh, they're really fascinating and uh, we'll see very interesting developments out of Google and I'm not gonna say anything else about that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it really doesn't make sense for a company to try to develop their own at this point. It's pretty late in the game and uh, the existing solutions work very well and they won't be able to do much. More. Like if Google comes in and says, hey, we took some existing thing and we tweaked it for our own needs, everyone will just kind of look at them with disdain. That's not very good. Um, Facebook ended up taking hot stuff, which was not done by anybody else, so they, they can claim some novelty. But the, the big, big companies, if they come in without novelty, it'll be a flop on, on announcement, not even flop on, on, on actual rollout. So it'll flop even before it's, like as soon as people hear it, they'll be like, okay, no, no innovation, you don't belong, right? So the days of being able to take the code base and tweak it and make money, those are gone. Is success in the space dependent on innovation, do you think, in your mind? Say again? Is, this, is success in the space dependent on innovation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Time and time again, I think we see that technology pulls ahead if it has some competitive advantage, if it does something different than everybody else. Um, you know, taking Bitcoin, changing the block interval time from 10 minutes to two and a half minutes, and then calling it, you know, what, what is it, silver to Bitcoin's gold or whatever. <laughs> Brilliant marketing. Brilliant marketing, but it's just crap. There is nothing there. And in the long, long term, it cannot sustain itself. It's just a glorified testnet. So um, I think the same is true for every other project. So you, if you want to be ahead, you got to have the best technology. 
And it doesn't, it's, it's necessary. It's not sufficient. So just yeah. because you have great technology doesn't mean you're going to succeed. Uh, but, but if you don't have great technology, you will definitely not succeed. Like, not in the long term anyway. So, and I mean, like I see the space as like very much Pareto efficient. But the yeah. optimizing for one thing, you're always going to pay somewhere else. Um, so in my mind, I think we're going to see a couple protocols survive that are kind of like pick, pick their like their thing that they're going for. Right. Yeah. And then some use cases will build around that. Like, do you, do you think that, or are we going to actually have like one standard blockchain and, and Bitcoin for legacy reasons? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I think, uh, so I disagree that there's going to be just one chain. I think we'll have multiple and um, we probably won't have 2,000. Those 2,000 are mostly crap anyway. But you know, you and I know very well, if we look at the top 20, 30 coins, we know which ones are worthy of being around and which ones are just me too coins, right? Or, or just you know, crappy little things that people push. So, um, uh, so I don't see Bitcoin going anywhere. And I mean it both ways. I don't see it going down and disappearing um, into oblivion. Um, and I don't see it going up and becoming a multi-trillion da 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 da. You know, let's uh, let's threaten the dominance of the dollar across the universe kind of a coin either. So um, Bitcoin is going to be around, and there will be other coins that surpass it. So I mean, I that is basically the store of value narrative: is that like it'll be around longer than potentially the sovereign state that you're part of, right? <laughs> possibly. Yeah, possibly, yeah, exactly. That, that's fine. If people are putting their money for that reason, then I think that's okay. They have to realize it's super volatile yep. and store of value. It leaks, leaks, non, like, leaks value out of the system. That's not good. And there are a bunch of problems with it, but the community is strong around it, right? It's like uh, not strong in a good sense, but there is a lot of... Um, we, we, we all, I'm sure you were part of this as well, spent a lot of energy pushing the Bitcoin narrative in the early days, right? In 2014, yeah. I testified, not in testifying formally, I, I, uh, I introduced a large number of politicos, probably more than anybody else, to Bitcoin and with that branding. So that they are still riding that wave, uh, but the coin has stopped evolving. And people don't really build on Bitcoin anymore. They're now trying to build on Lightning, which doesn't really work. So, um, you know, whatever. It's going to be around. It'll be fine. But that's not where the action is going to be. And uh, the action is going to come in on, uh, on, on, on the side of coins that really know how to innovate. And most importantly, that have use cases. So I look around, and I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, there are projects where it's like, you know, hey, I came up with a cool idea and you hear it out, 90% of the time, the idea makes no sense. It's AI plus blockchain. It's like, okay, dude, I don't want to hear <laughs> more about this. It's virtual reality in there too to get the trifecta, right? That's right. <laughs> VR, AI, blockchain, we're done, right? So, uh, so I can't tell you, yeah, because that's pretty bad. But 10% of the time, you hear it out, and then you realize, okay, what do you have? is something that in academia we would call a master's project, right? You came up with a way, not you, you, but you know, this person came up with a way to compress the blockchain or whatever. Some, some bizarre, like not bizarre, something that's actually good that they figured out, but doesn't necessarily lead to a use case. It's just one improvement on a metric that, that doesn't really mean all that much in, in this particular case. 
So um, what I think is really exciting are those, those functionality improvements where it says, look, I have a different model entirely. I didn't just copy my stuff from Satoshi. Everybody copies everything from Satoshi. They have the same damn stupid network model that Satoshi came up with, and everybody, like a lemming, ends up copying that, that thing, except we, we tried to do something different in Ava. Um, but, uh, but it's really those innovative differences that, that lead to different use cases that set projects apart. That's what we've been trying to do. Cool. That's very cool. Um, so we're, we're almost out of time, uh, so we can kind of finish up. Um, so thank you for, for being part of this podcast. I know Ava's no, no sharding, so we didn't even talk about sharding. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing against sharding. I think so. I've been working on a sharding protocol for some time. And, um, and I, like, I like the idea in general, but Ava doesn't do sharding. And um, the, the, the trade-offs involved are, uh, I think, not very good. And I think we're going to see this as more sharding-based protocols come online um, because the latency, what is really hard to get out of any of these distributed systems is low latency. You know yes, this. Yes, name. yes. I can, get, I can get high TPS. There yeah. are so many tricks for getting high TPS. But low latency is incredibly elusive. And anybody who has dealt with low latency systems knows how precious it is. Precious it is. So 10 millisecond or whatever, 100 millisecond response times versus three seconds, this is a world of a difference. Yeah. So uh, just to give people context, I remember when Google switched from like 100 millisecond response times to, to 50, or sorry, from 200 to 50. And, you know, like, I didn't think about it. Oh, like, why are they doing this? Who cares? But as soon as you start using it, like you can't go back. Right? Like, I absolutely can't go yeah. back. Yeah. And sharding goes in the other direction. So it makes, it makes common operations take longer, which is not a good, good yep. thing to give up. So, um, so I'm not a big believer in it, but I do have the, we, in review somewhere, we have a document that describes the first sound sharding scheme. And um, there are so many gotchas, hidden gotchas, in implementing a sharding protocol as well. So I'm, uh, I mean, I like the idea. I'm not against any of these. I'm very open-minded as people should be exploring these things. There's a lot of noise made about things. What is bad is pre-commitment. You cannot, this is science, you cannot pick your direction without having done feasibility studies, without having done measurements and so forth. So, um, uh, any project that does pre-commitments, like the way Bitcoin pre-committed to the Lightning Network, without knowing what its capacity would be, without knowing anything about the emergent properties of the graph, these are mistakes. And I think um, what we like to do in Ava, and generally everything I do, is uh, explore everything, look at the numbers, let the science guide you, as opposed to let your ego or preconceptions guide you. So anyway, so that's my like long-winded answer of, I like sharding, I think it's cool, I've done a bunch of work in it, uh, I've done a bunch of work in payment, layer two payment protocols as well, and I'm not exploring those ideas because even though I still to this day have the fastest layer two payment protocol, um, I think there are too many unknowns about it, right? It's yeah. Not yeah, that's what I think, sorry. Oh, but, no, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, the like the reason why I, didn't, I thought that sharding was a non-starter is just from my work on multi-core CPUs. The latency's mm -hmm. there. 
on a single chip are insane compared to just talking with a single core. Like if you ask any like operating systems engineer, what do you want? I want a, a single core that's, you know, 200 gigahertz. Give me that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. want 200 cores. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have the right background. So one of the things actually totally that uh, happens here is that the word cryptocurrency, the word crypto attracts, and makes people believe that crypto is central to what we do. And it's the biggest con and it's our biggest advantage, you and me, because crypto is really a sideshow. That's not where the action is. Satoshi's biggest invention was a distributed systems protocol. It wasn't cryptographic, he just used black box, very simple uh, things that date back to the 80s and 90s. So he used constructs that are very well understood from crypto, but he had to invent new distributed systems uh, constructs. And the same is happening with projects today. You look at the projects that ended up staffing themselves with crypto people. They've got number tricks up the wazoo, and none of those tricks actually help with the actual task at hand, which is build something that works, which takes us back all the way to the beginning of our conversation. Yeah. And maybe yeah. that's a good, good note to end on. Yeah, 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 I agree with you. Um, it's tough. Like this is engineering problems that are really, really hard. That mm -hmm. I, I mean, like half of the engineering at Google is still working on them, and you feel like they've solved them all, but <laughs> they haven't. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. There's such a wide blue yonder yeah. world out there. Yeah. It's amazing to be in it at this point in time. Cool. So, um, thank you so much for for being on the show. It's uh, been like a super fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to have a heart-to-heart -heart sort of hashing it out of uh, technical topics between two techies. So I hope people uh, found it at least somewhat amusing, if not somewhat informative. Cool. Okay. okay. All right. Take care. Take care. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you have any questions for our guests or want to continue this discussion, please check out our website at solana.com. That's S-O-L-A-N-A.com. There are links to our Discord where most of our communication happens in the company. Also, you should check out our GitHub page where we post all of our code for you to check out and even help out with. GitHub.com slash Solana dash labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at Solana. Thanks for listening. See you next week.